The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's episode of the History of Literature podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Hello, thanks for joining us today. I'm Jack Wilson, and this is my podcast. We're on our journey from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Actually, we we should do one earlier than that, shouldn't we? I'm, I'm interested in those people, too, pre-literate people. What kind of literature did they have, or what were their literary impulses? What did they do instead of literature? What would we call that one? Episode zero? I think we already... <laughs> I think we already have an episode zero. We've already done that. That was the one where we talked about battling the beast. How about episode negative one? We're getting into the territory of today's subject. D.H. Lawrence, he'd have enjoyed that episode. He liked thinking about humans before they started thinking too much. When they lived by instinct, when they gazed at stars and walked through the wind and felt the raindrops and stared at the moon and felt the warmth of human touch. Instinct over intellect. So that's today coming up, D.H. Lawrence. We've been on a real tear here. Jade Austin to Don Juan. What what a swerve that was, except Jane Austen was a fan of Don Juan's. She admired him as a character, this compound of cruelty and lust. After Don Juan, you'd think we'd swerve back toward Jane Austen a bit, but no, we're going even farther, farther out to the man who makes Don Juan's life look tame. Don Juan burned in hell. Our subject today, D.H. Lawrence, burned in life. Let's hear from a listener who's out there embracing the cosmos, Dear Jack. I'm currently in the airport, ready for my flight to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, via Seoul. And your voice is a fantastic one to have in my ears while I wait. I've been listening for more than a year now. Wow. Let me interrupt here. That's excellent. Hard to believe we've been doing this for more than a year. But then again, we're coming up on the 100th episode, which we should do something special. Right, Gar? Anyway, listeners, let me know if you have any ideas for what you'd like to hear on the 100th episode. We'll take requests. Back to the email. I've been listening for more than a year now, and I never get bored of the fascinating topics you choose. I'm going to university to study comparative literature in September, and one of the novels on my suggested reading list is Don Quixote. Oh, boy. I was fully intent on finding a copy and bringing it along for my long journey until I listened to your episode on classic novels that you don't need to read. Oh, boy. Now we're causing university students to ditch their suggested reading lists. (laughs) Mike Mike has a lot to answer for, for choosing that one. The listener writes, Hearing about vomiting into someone else's mouth on the podcast was more than enough for me. Instead, I've brought a clockwork orange and the portrait of a lady, as well as the secret history of the Mongol queens and Genghis Khan and the making of the modern world both by Jack Weatherford, because they seemed fitting for my trip to Mongolia. Rest assured that I will probably be listening to your podcast during any traveling I will be doing this month. Thank you for providing all of this quality edutainment for free. Smiley face. Yours, Nirvana. Okay, 
Thank you, Nirvana, and good luck on your trip to Mongolia. Man, out there under the stars and the enormous sky reminds me of my trip to Tibet, of course, the place where I went up and up and up and up and have never really come back down, in a sense. Travel is so beautiful. Stay safe and have a wonderful time. As for the books, I think those are good choices. I'm sure a portrait of a lady will keep you good company. And of course, we will too, at least once a week. I don't know what the right word to describe this feeling I have is. Honored, I guess. I feel honored to be part of Nirvana's life like this. Flattered and honored and and grateful to have her on board. Now go do some living, Nirvana. And when you need a friendly voice, here we will be. D.H. Lawrence was a great traveler. Great travel writer, and of course, one of the greatest travelers slash novelists in history. We'll have that coming up. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Imagine there's a crackpot on the corner. You're in the city, and a street prophet is holding forth loudly, telling the world all the truths that it's too blind to see. You see them, right? You hear them, these crackpots, and what do you do? Bury your head, hustle past, ignore them. You've got places to go. Work awaits. You don't have time. Now imagine someone tells you that they've been listening to one of these guys. They find his ideas interesting. He's out there. He's aggressive. But he's thought-provoking. And the guy is a musician, too, an artist. He can be very sensitive. He's as normal as you and me, except that his ideas are fantastic, rich, alive, vital. And he's intense. Way, way, way more intense than most people. And here's the thing. Your friend says that you can go have lunch with this wild man on the corner, just the two of you. She says he'll talk more than he listens, but he'll also tell you his ideas about philosophy and history and human psychology. His mind races and leaps, and he's read everything and he knows everything, but it all churns through this fantastic imagination of his. Whether he's talking about the menu, or the way the waiter is looking at him, or the woman who's sitting across the restaurant alone with three kids who are scribbling on their coloring sheets, 
the food on the plate, the drink in the glass, all of it will go through his imaginative process and his burning ideas and will go into this great system of thought that he's working out in his head. It's not just a random set of epiphanies. It seems like it's working towards something unified with deep movements underneath. It's like the surface of the ocean. There's a bit of ebb and flow to it, which you can see on the surface, and there's the beauty of the sun glinting off the waves and the shifts in colors and light and the silvery fish as they race through. And then there are the deeper currents that run underneath the heaviness, the enormous shifts, the ones connected to the rotation of the earth and the pull of the moon, the massive unseen forces moving, generating, battling under there. And then there's even the bigger currents, the creator force, the gods or absence of gods, the heavens, the stars, the place of humans and human thought in all of this. Imagine your street prophet, your crackpot philosopher, your wild-eyed man on the corner, all tidied up for a lunch, talking about everything you see, the tables, the chairs, the bottles of hot sauce lined up like soldiers. And yet he's talking about more, too, the deep reality, the massive unseen forces, the the buried part of the world that moves us as we flit and float on the surface. That's a little what it's like to encounter the works of D.H. Lawrence. He can be a beautiful writer and a hugely imaginative one. He can be enormously engaging and also very tedious. He's easy to hustle past with our heads down. He often is that crackpot on the corner. Some of his ideas are distasteful. Some are wrong. Sometimes we can see exactly how his own preference for instinct overthinking has carried him into a blind alley with no way out. But for every bad idea, there will be 20 things you haven't thought of before, delivered with the passion of a man who believes what he's saying, believes it to be true, and believes it to be important, to be necessary. You could also enjoy that lunch, couldn't you? Let's think about the best way to approach it. I don't think it's a good idea to take notes and try to come up with a coherent overview of what he's trying to say. I don't think that was Lawrence's preference either, and I'll tell you why later in the program. I also don't think it would be a good idea to accept everything he says. Here's a prophet. He's saying some true things. So if there's something that doesn't seem right, the problem must be with me, not him. That's one way people might think, right? A blind follower, but that's an awful way to read anything. And it's a particularly worthless way of reading here. Here's what you should do. You go to the lunch, you bring your best self. Get ready. Your mind should be active, alert, discerning. With Jane Austen, you can enjoy. She's the driver of the car. You can be the passenger. You can ride along with her. Your eyes can scan the road. If you want, you can be alert. Or you can kind of sit back. Let her take care of the driving. Either way, you'll get there. With Lawrence, it's different. Lawrence is talking about where he's headed and how he's going to get there. He's going to take all kinds of swerves, all kinds of risks. Maybe he'll end up arrested or driving his car into a tree. Maybe he'll point the car toward Canada and wind up in Mexico. He's going to go fast, though. Your job is to decide what segments do you join him for, where do you bail out, what part of his plan makes sense. And the destination doesn't really matter as much as the wild ride careening down the road, seeing the world while this guy tells you things he thinks, which are definitely imaginative and maybe brilliant and maybe something you're better off leaving behind and going your own way. So, let me give you my own roadmap. Here are the questions we're going to tackle today. Who was D.H. Lawrence? Where did he come from and what did he do? What drove him? What were his ideas and why was he so passionate about them? 
In what ways was he misunderstood by his peers, and what did E.M. Forster see in him that others missed? Forster would have definitely attended the lunch, by the way. By the time D.H. Lawrence died in 1930, the world had been exhausted by him. They had gone from believing in his genius to thinking he was a German spy, to condemning his works as immoral, to shunning him. E.M. Forster said that he was the great imaginative novelist of our time, and you can't strip out the prophecy from the rest of his work. The prophecy is part of the package. I'll show you how that all works. But first, let's explain what the package was. Herbert Lawrence was born in 1885 in a coal mining town called Eastwood. His father was a barely literate coal miner. His mother was a tutor who had to work in a lace factory, not by choice, but because they were poor. The struggles of his parents with one another and with their lot in life fueled Lawrence throughout his career. England is industrializing. England is turning from the pastoral and agricultural worlds to the mines and factories. It's easy to look at your parents and say, these are people who a couple of hundred years ago would have been very, would have had very different lives. They might have been working outside and above ground, herding sheep, maybe, working the land. Okay, I'm not saying they'll be kings and queens, but they might have been something less pointless. They could have come home invigorated from the day's work, sun splashed, tired, but eager to see their families. And here they are instead. In this world, today's world, cogs in a giant machine that's grinding their bodies into dust and snuffing out their spirit. Lawrence himself was given a chance for something different. His mother wanted it that way. As a boy, he roamed across the countryside near Sherwood Forest, or what was left of it by then, and the patches of open, hilly country that the mines hadn't taken. He loved the natural world, and he appreciated it with a kind of intimacy and depth that few writers have been able to transmute into their works. This is one of the finest qualities of his writing. And what a prolific writer he was. He worked for a while as a teacher, but his writing took off, and then it was all writing all the time. He died at the fairly young age of 44, and somehow in that relatively short span, he wrote 12 novels, 10 or so collections of short stories, 8 plays, something like 800 poems, and hundreds, if not thousands, of letters. Oh, and he translated six books and wrote many essays, some of which were the length of books, and he wrote travel books, too. I haven't even mentioned his travel books, even though, for my money, he's one of the greatest travel writers in the history of the English language. One imagines him, considering all that output, one imagines him like Proust in his later years, lying in his bed, living in his bed, dedicating his life to getting words on the page, or Balzac, drinking coffee by the gallon, writing in some small attic room, but no. While Lawrence was writing all this, he was also living a wild, itinerant life. He married a German aristocrat, Frieda, who was a distant cousin of the Red Baron. During World War I, he and Frieda were stuck between the two warring countries, suspected by both. They moved around Europe several times, and then they finally moved to the Americas, drawn to Mexico and New Mexico, and the big open skies and the gorgeous colors and the heat 
and the desert scrub and the rituals of ancient indigenous peoples. He and Frida seem to have a strange but loving relationship. He's been criticized for beating her, but that phrase alone isn't really broad enough to capture their relationship. For one thing, he was not large. When he died, he was 85 pounds. Some of that was illness, no doubt, but if you see pictures of him, you'll see that he was never a large man. Kenneth Branagh played him in a film in 1985 with Helen Mirren playing Frida, which is perfect because Helen Mirren's from an aristocratic background too, and she gives Frida the air of ease and undercurrent of subversion that one imagines Frida had. What strikes me about Kenneth Branagh in the film is how thin he looks. This is early in his career and he's young, but he looks like a little tadpole. I wonder if he lost weight for the part. There's a scene where he's sitting in front of a fire, reading his work to his friends, and his knees are bent, and he's sitting on his heels. And from a distance, you might think you were looking at Mahatma Gandhi in those years when he was a lawyer wearing a suit. That's how small Lawrence looks. Frida was bigger, and she used to beat him too. Reports are that she'd come after him with plates, which she swung at his head. And when they asked her later if Lawrence beat her, she said yes. It's preferable to fight physically than to let things stew inside you, don't you think? Wouldn't that have been the worst thing of all? If we had never swung at each other, we had never expressed that rage. Doesn't everybody think that way? That was her view. So maybe we need to accept it a little bit more, give a little more room to the Lawrences. They had a different sort of relationship. and They seem to have loved each other, so maybe it's not completely misogynistic. On the other hand, his work often is. It's hard to read it any other way. And even Frida read some of his work and said, that is astonishingly brutal. That's just one area where Lawrence gets things wrong in his work. His novels are vivid and often contain compelling moments, but they can be very tedious. The street prophet tends to repeat himself, after all. And sometimes you can feel as if his own personal theories are taken for granted and that anyone who disagrees is an idiot or blind There's an intensity and an urgency to his views which can make the reader feel claustrophobic and it can feel lopsided, overly polemical. At its worst, it can impact the characters so that they become mouthpieces for Lawrence's views, symbols of them. That's a frequent criticism of Lawrence's work, that his characters are are there merely to serve some larger purpose, to act out or advance a particular theme that helps Lawrence make a point. All novelists have a point, a point of view, something they're trying to get across. The best ones, though, also have a respect for their characters that allows the complexities of life to shine through in a believable way. That's not the only problem. With Lawrence, he could be harsh, and his views of women and gender relations certainly don't ring true to us today. He scandalized the public with his sexual frankness, but it hasn't held up well. The passages about Fire in the loins and the springing of a man's seed tend to be more risible than erotic today. The plots of Lawrence's novels have gaps or obvious patchwork. Characters creak on and off the stage. The dialogue is often sharp, but it can also be overly verbose, as can the descriptions. And while we're cataloging all the flaws, he was also anti-Semitic or at least his writings can be read that way. Critics trying to put his views in context will point to the generally held views in England at the time and say that Lawrence's upfront statements, even if crude, and there are only a few of them, at least those are preferable to the insidious and systematic anti-Semitism of 
say, a T.S. Eliot or an Ezra Pound. I don't think that excuse is really sufficient as an excuse. But he's also accused of being a fascist or of holding authoritarian views. But Lawrence is a complicated character. And I don't want to put him, who died in 1930, into one camp or the other. It's not clear where he'd have landed in 1936 or 1942 or 1950. He was iconoclastic enough that it's easy to speculate, but hard to assert anything with confidence about his political views. He's also that kind of person of whom defenders will often say, well, sure, he hates this group or that group, but he hates everyone. And again, I don't say that as an excuse. It always seems like a kind of a poor excuse to me, but it gives you a sense of what you'll be dealing with with Lawrence. Listen to how he flies off the handle at the English. In this letter, he's just heard that a London publisher has turned down the manuscript of his novel Sons and Lovers. And the reason given was a, quote, want of reticence, end quote, which the publisher says will make it unpalatable to the broader book-buying public. And Lawrence writes in this letter, Curse the blasted, jelly-boned swines, the slimy, the belly-wriggling invertebrates, the miserable sodding rotters, the flaming sods, the sniveling, dribbling, dithering, palsied, pulseless lot that make up England today. God, how I hate them. God curse them, funkers. God blast them, wishwash. Exterminate them, slime. End quote. That's, that's what he's pulling from. That's the rage he taps into that comes pouring out of him with venom, extreme venom, because he's heard a bit of bad news. He's heard that the public might not like his, his novel or his want of reticence. But then he calms down and says, by the way, P.S., the publisher is quite right as a businessman. <laughs> That's who we have here, a volcano erupting lava and pouring it still hot onto the page. Even sex isn't really portrayed with the reader in mind. It's not erotic for its own sake. It's not even very erotic. It's the product of his worldview of the shift in human beings from unconscious instinct to conscious, overly conscious intellect, in a view that sex can suffer when it undergoes that same transition, when it is a symptom of the rot and decay that has affected society in the world of factories and mechanical production. And it can also, sex can also point us toward a higher truth, a bygone era, a world where humans were connecting with one another without shame and sin, and in doing so, affirming something true about their natural state. But that brings E.M. Forster to mind. It's astonishing to think of this now that D.H. Lawrence's novels have become part of the English literature tradition. Sons and Lovers, The Rainbow, Women in Love, and Lady Chatterley's Lover are all well known to us. They're on many lists, the greatest novels in the 20th century or forever, as are stories like The Odor of Chrysanthemums and The Rocking Horse Winner. Going a little deeper are nonfiction works like Apocalypse and Studies in Classic American Literature and his Sketches of Etruscan Places and other Italian essays. Lawrence comes and goes. His star rises and falls. But you can't make a list of 20th century English authors without considering him. And it would have, would have to be a pretty short list to leave him out. 
But in 1930, when he died, he was almost completely out of style. He was viewed by most of the reading public and the, the critical world as something like a pornographer who had squandered whatever minor literary talents he may have had. Certainly not someone whose works would last. E.M. Forster changed that along with another critic, F.R. Levis, who wrote an appreciation soon after. But Forster's came first. And it's a wonderful example of contemporary criticism, a time when the critic saw what others had missed. He gave a kind of obituary as part of a radio series he was doing on the BBC, and he pointed out how beautifully Lawrence could write, his imaginative gifts, and how the imagination, the powers of description, and Lawrence's views of the world were in some sense unified. Here's Forster. Quote, Much of Lawrence's work is tedious, and some of it shocks people, so that we are inclined to say, what a pity, what a pity to go on about the subconscious and the solar plexus and maleness and femaleness and African darkness and the cosmic battle when you can write with such insight about human beings and so beautifully about flowers. We can't see what he could, namely, that for him all these things were connected but the magic light that transcends his senses and descriptions is reflected through the prism of a theory. If he didn't preach in prophecy, he couldn't see and feel. What a marvelous phrase that is of Forster's. If he didn't preach in prophecy, he couldn't see and feel. This unlocks D.H. Lawrence for me, just unlocks him. This is exactly the right way to take in Lawrence and sift through the silt and admire the gold that's left behind. Forster goes on to explain, Although Lawrence is a creature of moods, you seldom know what's coming next in his novels. He is not a creature of compartments. You can't say, let's drop his theories and enjoy his art, because the two are one. Disbelieve his theories, if you like, but never brush them aside. And don't scold him, even when he scolds you. He resembles a natural process much more nearly than do most writers. He writes from his instinct as well as preaching instinct, and one might as well scold a flower for growing on a manure heap, or a manure heap for producing a flower. (laughs) It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. Just wonderful. Now, I encountered Lawrence in college, or just after, I can't remember exactly. I remember reading his writing about the Etruscans after I had been to Italy, being blown away by it, and I knew about the ban on Lady Chatterley's lover and the obscenity trials in the U.S. and England and how important those had been in the history of literature. I had heard of Lawrence in the context of other bomb throwers like F.T. Marinetti and Ezra Pound and even Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche is probably the best example, comparable to Lawrence. God is dead. Let's go back to a pre-Socratic era. Christianity is a slave morality. All those are kind of Laurentian ideas. And then, in a huge library in Kaohsiung, the city in Taiwan where I was living, I encountered a whole floor of English language books. Luckily, I had a Chinese name and a chop, and I could check out books with my chop. My Chinese teacher, a merry young woman with thick glasses and a kind of a impish grin, had helped me pick out my Chinese name. The first one I chose caused her to burst into laughter. That, she said, is the name of a famous hairspray. She had included that one as a joke. 
So I picked the second one, my second choice, which meant comfortable philosopher. That's how I viewed myself back then. Why not? Good Chinese name. Me, the comfortable philosopher. So I got the wooden chop and the red ink. And bam, suddenly I could check out books. And so I checked out Lawrence's book, Studies in Classic American Literature. And I'm expecting to read about Hawthorne and Melville and Twain and Emily Dickinson in a kind of encyclopedia way. Lawrence was a great advocate of Melville. He got Melville long before that was fashionable. But suddenly, I'm reading about Ben Franklin. I hadn't really thought of that as classic American literature before, but only because it was such a given that Ben Franklin was one of our greats, one of our leaders. I had read excerpts of the autobiography of Ben Franklin in English and history class in high school, and I had always enjoyed it, taking it for what it was, something instructive, Ben Franklin and his guidelines for self-improvement. You make lists of what you need to improve and how you can how you can master yourself, how you can get better at each of those things. You work on it little by little, setting goals, reaching them. I had my own plan in high school. Maybe it was inspired by Ben Franklin. I was not going to have a car because my dad told me that high school kids always made the mistake of buying a cheap car, scraping together $500 or something, buying a car, and then spending all their money on repairs and insurance and getting a job just to afford their car. And he said, I should just use one of my parents' two cars rather than making all those efforts to buy some bombed-out thing that would swallow up oil in quart-sized gulps, break down all the time. It was good advice. That was on my list. Also on my list, no serious girlfriend for five years. Called it my five-year plan. Hardly anyone's high school relationship lasted anyway. And why not just figure things out on my own before trying to figure all that out too. Everyone who heard about my five-year plan thought it was a terrible idea. That is, if they were under the age of 22, and everyone older than that thought it was a fantastic idea, which seemed to confirm that I was on the right track. My scheme was well underway. Ben Franklin, here I come. And then here comes Lawrence, tearing into Ben Franklin with a kind of fury. I was shocked. I thought Ben Franklin was revered. Who could object to Ben Franklin? Wasn't too religious. He was full of common sense. A lot of quirky little funny little phrases. A lot of diverse interests. Scientist. More or less a a love of liberty and a force for good. Lawrence said otherwise. Lawrence hated the logic of Ben Franklin. He hated how he made those charts and graphed out the qualities of men and talked about how he wanted to improve his orderliness and humility and temperance and silence and all those qualities. Lawrence was mocking the project and he says, well, there's Ben Franklin. Let's all admire him for inventing the post office and for his experiments with electricity and blah, blah, blah. But we don't have to like him. Here's Lawrence. Here's here's how he starts the chapter. The perfectibility of man. Ah, heaven, what a dreary theme. The perfectibility of the Ford car. The perfectibility of which man? I am many men. Which of them are you going to perfect? I am not a mechanical contrivance. He calls Franklin's lists and charts barbed wire. Lawrence loved nature so much in the natural state, the wildness of nature. 
barbed wire is about as bad as you can get in Lawrence's worldview. And that's true for the soul as well. Can you see how this would appeal to a young man like I was? It's a a youthful idea, youthful, rebellious, angry. The howl in the night, the rage against the machine. It was all perfect for me out there in Taiwan on my motorcycle. I had disengaged from all the, the career paths that seemed like everyone I went to college with had chosen. They were all working for banks or going to graduate school. They were all following the paths that were set for them. Not me. I was flying around from job to job. I was an English teacher hustling for cash. Apple, 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 one hour. And let's read some Virginia Woolf the next. All my cash went in a a Kleenex box, my secret stash. I was saving up for a trip around the world. Monsoon rains would blast me from side to side and wind nearly knocked me off my bike. That was me roaring into a night market, grabbing food, racing home, reading, sleeping hard, studying Chinese, living, loving, earning, open, wide open, everything wide, wide open. If I went there as Ben Franklin, I was coming out as D.H. Lawrence, minus the misogyny and the misanthropy, the anti-Semitism and the proto-fascism and the literary talent. Lawrence goes on to say, but man has a soul, though you can't locate it either in his purse or his pocketbook or his heart or his stomach or his head. The wholeness of a man is his soul, not merely that nice little comfortable bit which Benjamin marks out. It's a queer thing as a man's soul. It's the whole of him which means it is the unknown him as well as the known. It seems to me just funny, professors and Benjamins, fixing the functions of the soul. Why, the soul of man is a vast forest, and all Benjamin intended was a neat back garden. So, where does that leave us? Lawrence's advice, yes, we don't want to limit ourselves, fine, but how do we get bigger? I was still reading, still searching, when I came across another book that Lawrence wrote, and I read the phrase, Breast to Breast with the Cosmos. Yes, that resonated with me. Seize life. Grab it. Be young and strong and full of life and burn. Burn, burn, rage. Seek, discover, connect. Live with passion. This is from an extended essay that Lawrence wrote called Apocalypse and the Writings on Revelation. Lawrence speculates about Jesus' young life and the way the pagans carrying flowers and sacrifices to the gods must have fired Jesus' imagination. This is a part, according to Lawrence, was rubbed out of the history books, not talked about. The early church fathers made sure of that. But he points out that Jesus must have had this, must have been surrounded by it. He speculates about what Jesus' response would have been based on what we know about Jesus' character. Here's Lawrence. Yet, he, Jesus, must have been familiar with the pagan temples, temples to Isis, temples to Mithras and Bacchus. They must have been part of his landscape, as must the pagans carrying flowers and sacrifice to the gods and the open-air ritual of sacrifice. Jesus must have seen it all, all his life familiar and not unfriendly. 
We cannot feel that he hated it. Surely it had its beauty for him, too. He was a country boy, not bred up in the narrowness of a city set. In the country, things which are accepted more naturally, and probably it was the charm of the small pagan temples in the Galilean countryside which made him resent so hotly the trafficking in the great temple of Jerusalem. The temples were there. The pagan worship was in the air. How should Jesus be insensitive to it? It is only stupid, mechanical people who are not aware of things felt by others. Jesus may not have known anything definite about the mysteries of Mithras or Isis or the Orphic mysteries, yet since some of them were practiced in his neighborhood, how could he be unaware of them and of their supposed significance? A great nature like that of Jesus is sensitively aware, and who is going to tell me that he was totally unaware of Dionysius and the Orphic mysteries or the mysteries of Isis or Mithras? For the temples of these deities must have stood by the Sea of Galilee. Only a stupid nature is unaware of things that are vital to others. Could I be unaware of a Catholic procession if I met it in the street? Or fail to ask what it was about? And in the same way that he must have known something of the pagan mysteries, even by breathing them in the air, since he lived in a pagan province, Jesus must have known also something of the ancient star lore and the ancient symbols. The old, old Chaldeans of the oldest Babylon began reading the stars, and the Jews very often read with them from the earliest days. The stars were in the Jewish consciousness, despite the fact that the scribes expurgated them so often. You can't easily make a people unaware of something which it is profoundly aware of. Even by turning the chief stars into archangels, you don't escape them entirely. This is Pure Lawrence, writing about how the structures of society operate upon the human, but how the human spirit still tries to free itself from its chains, to return to something more primitive, but also more natural, more instinctive, which for Lawrence also equates to better. Now, there's a great shift coming up here, which also shows how sex is always there for Lawrence, how it permeates his thinking. Sex for Lawrence is like the marker in a, tr- in a time travel story the broken toy or the flowers in the pocket, the cut on the chin that shows you that you came through the other side, but that what happened is real. So first, we're still with the stars. This is what's so great about Lawrence, and it's what Forster meant. We can talk about flowers. We can talk about two sisters in their living room, and all this is under the mask of today's hyper-intellectualized consciousness. But let's not forget the cosmos. Here's Lawrence. The stars are very remote to us, thinly scattered in enormous, enormous space, comparatively so lonely and few. But that is how we see them objectively, scientifically. The first way of seeing the stars was purely subjective. It seems to me man has had, as far as we can tell, three great phases of consciousness, each carrying its own culture. The first was a far-off phase of purely collective consciousness when men thought and felt instinctively together like a great flock of birds or pack of wolves. They did not think single thoughts or feel single feelings, but their great thoughts and their great feelings were tribal, felt all at once by a mass of men, but culminating or focusing in some leader. This feeling in unison is profound and is religious. At its highest, it is purely religious, taking religious to mean the feeling of being in connection, 
and at its deepest, the early unison consciousness of man was aware of the cosmos and aware of the immediate connection between itself and the vast, potent, terrible cosmos that lived with all life. Naked tribal man, breast to breast with the naked cosmos, pouring his consciousness collectively into the cosmos, and in ritual, in naked superb ritual alone, taking from the cosmos life, vitality, potency, prowess, and power. Pouvoir, macht, might. The tribe or nation culminated in one man, the leader or chief, the tip of the great collective body, and this tip of the tribe touched the very heart of the cosmos, the core of the sun, and drew down the life of the potent heavens to man, potent yet yearning man. This was the condition of prehistoric or shadow historic civilized man. It was the civilization of the tumulus and the pyramid, pyramidical to symbolize the broad basis of the people, culminating in the living tip of the leader or hero. It was a culture absolutely religious, for all was religious. Every act was performed in connection with the great cosmos, and at the same time there were no gods. Man, tribal or collective man, was nakedly breast to breast with the cosmos, and the need for God had not arisen in the human soul. It did not arise till man felt, felt himself cut off from the cosmos, till he became aware of himself apart, as an apart, fragmentary, unfinished thing. This is the fall, the fall into knowledge or self-awareness, the fall into tragedy and into sin. For a man's sex is his fragmentariness. The phallos is the point at which man is broken off from his context and at which he can be rejoined. In his awareness of sex, which is awareness of separateness and fragmentariness, lies man's sense of shame and sin. How man came to be cut off in consciousness from the cosmos, we do not know. But we can see that it is the same thing as knowledge. Knowledge is only possible in a separation of subject and object. We can also see that it is tragedy. And we can see that it may be called sin, since it is a fall from unison or at-oneness. We can also see that it makes a god or gods necessary to the consciousness. There must be an intermediary between man and the lost cosmos. There must be an intermediary consciousness which understands both sides both the great, creative, incomprehensible cosmos and the soul of man. In short, the cosmos must have a great man in it, a soul or God. It goes on. Jesus is a dreamer, thinking about the stars and strange gods that the Orthodox Jewish priests had suppressed, but the early Christian fathers were also good suppressors. You see what I mean about Lawrence? Forster is right for for Lawrence, it's all seamless and connected. It's all part of one giant pattern, like a big, enormous quilt. Flower petals flow into man's consciousness, which flow into the forces impacting man's consciousness, which flow into concepts of God and sin and Jesus, and the movement that all these ideas have made from the past to the present. Lawrence wants us to understand all this and to feel it, and he wants it to change us. He wants to challenge our views. He wants us to agree with him, and you can see how provocative his ideas are, how engaging, and how his writing calls forth all our powers. Here's a passage from one of Lawrence's letters, cited by Ben Kunkel, who's writing in The New Yorker. Kunkel says that this half a paragraph pretty much sums up Lawrence. Lawrence writes, 
The real way of living is to answer to one's wants. Not, I want to light up with my intelligence as many things as possible, but for the living of my full flame, I want that liberty. I want that woman. I want that pound of peaches. I want to go to sleep. I want to go to the pub and have a good time. I want to look a beastly swell today. I want to kiss that girl. I want to insult that man. Instead of that, we talk about some sort of ideas. I'm like Carlyle who they say wrote 50 volumes on the value of silence. Kunkel says, Everything is here in half a paragraph. Lawrence comprehends his life. There is the sense, gained from Frida, of having no obligations but to desire. The virtually pre-Socratic tendency to see all life as a species of flame, in Lawrence to be alive is always described as being on fire. The tone simultaneously of great casualness and authority the pleasure taken in vituperation, quote, I want to insult that man, end quote. And of course, the awareness that to marshal all one's eloquence, education, and discipline in defense of mute, dark, instinctual life is a crowning paradox, like Carlyle with his 50 volumes on silence. That's Kunkel. But what does this mean in Lawrence's fiction? What do we look for? Here's a passage written by this coal miner's son with his devoted and artistic and dedicated mother, the boy who was raised not to go down into the mines, but to walk above, to live in the landscape, to commune with nature, to be a perceiving, loving human being, embracing the world with a kind of vicious tenderness, and yet to combine this with his irritability, his intensity, his anger, and his fury. Listen to how this man describes a scene in nature and how it shifts from a passionate, loving description to something broader and more human, something bigger than humanity even, something larger, something cosmic. So we went along by the hurrying brook, which fell over little cascades in its haste, never looking once at the primroses that were glimmering all along its banks. We turned aside and climbed the hill through the woods, Velvety green sprigs of dog mercury were scattered on the red soil. We came to the top of a slope where the wood thinned. As I talked to Emily, I became dimly aware of a whiteness over the ground. She exclaimed with surprise, and I found that I was walking in the first shades of twilight over clumps of snowdrops. The hazels were thin, and only here and there an oak tree uprose. All the ground was white with snowdrops, like drops of manna scattered over the red earth on the gray-green clusters of leaves. There was a deep little dell, sharp sloping like a cup, and white sprinkling of flowers all the way down, with white flowers showing pale among the first inpouring of shadow at the bottom. The earth was red and warm, pricked with the dark, succulent green of bluebell sheaths, and embroidered with gray-green clusters of spears and many white flowerets. High above, above the light tracery of hazel, the weird oaks tangled in the sunset. Below, in the first shadows, drooped hosts of little white flowers, so silent and sad, it seemed like a holy communion of pure wild things, numberless, frail, and folded meekly, in the evening light. Other flower companies are glad. Stately, barbaric hordes of bluebells, merry-headed cowslip groups, even light, tossing wood anemones. 
but snowdrops are sad and mysterious. We have lost their meaning. They do not belong to us who ravish them. The girls bent among them, touching them with their fingers and symbolizing the yearning which I felt. Folded in the twilight, these conquered flowerets are sad like forlorn little friends of dryads. Did you hear the shift? I've analyzed this passage very closely. I can see right where it comes. I think it's the sentence where the weird oaks tangle in the sunset. It's like the sound of a car starting up. And then it goes and goes, a holy communion of pure wild things and stately barbaric hordes of bluebells and sad and mysterious snowdrops. The car here, the Lawrence, Lawrence's car is revving its engine. And by the time we get to, we have lost their meaning. They do not belong to us who ravish them. And folded in the twilight, these conquered flowerets are sad, like forlorn little friends of dryads. The car is speeding away. And Lawrence's foot has pushed the accelerator pedal all the way to the floor. It's a great physical description, a great description of nature. And in the first half of the passage, that's all there is. Just a wonderful description of a natural scene. But the second half of the passage is where the genius comes in, the fiery genius of Lawrence. Everything in the first half of the passage is true. Everything in the second half is the truth, capital T. Let me conclude with a piece of advice and two short passages, one just a sentence long. Here's the piece of advice. We're fans of Audible here, one of the sponsors of the show. So audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. They'll give you a free audiobook, and they throw a little bit my way too. But let's talk about the free audiobook. They have a book there, Lady Chatterley's Lover, read by Dame Judy Dench. Try that change how you hear Lawrence. She and her voice so commanding and responsible, sensitive. You feel like she gives Lawrence a different perspective, puts him in a different perspective. It's a a good entree into Lawrence. Here's the first of our two final passages. This one was written on the last page of Lawrence's last book. Quote, man wants his physical fulfillment first and foremost, since now, once and once only, he is in the flesh and potent. For man, the vast marvel is to be alive. For man, as for flower and beast and bird, the supreme triumph is to be most vividly, most perfectly alive. The dead may look after the afterwards, but the magnificent here and now of life in the flesh is ours, and ours alone and ours only for a time. We ought to dance with rapture that we should be alive and in the flesh and part of the living, incarnate cosmos. End quote. It's a gorgeous paragraph. Whatever we think of Lawrence and his many wayward opinions, There are very few writers who can redeem themselves with ideas and writing that are that sincerely held and that beautiful. What do we ultimately say about Lawrence? We should remember this sentence he wrote about writing novels, how hard it is to convey any one particular thing in the medium of a novel. Lawrence said, If you try to nail anything down in the novel, either it kills the novel or the novel gets up and walks away with a nail. 
His point is clear. Novels are not meant to be pinned down, and they can't be any more than clouds or waves could be. And to that list of supernatural wonders, the clouds and the waves and the wind, we might add literature. And for that matter, we might also add one of literature's wildest and most talented of all its many children, the one who called himself a savage pilgrim, and the one we call D.H. Lawrence. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Find more at jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com, facebook.com slash historyofliterature, or just simply historyofliterature.com. We're still sending out postcards to those who write an iTunes review or leave a five-star ranking or otherwise do something nice for the show. Just send us your address and we'll ship one out. Some really, really good ones are left, and I'm still writing a special literary quote on the back of each one. It's a nice thing to receive in the mail for anyone who loves books. My thanks to D.H. Lawrence for burning with the fury of a thousand suns. And to all of you for being here with me. I know you think I keep you company, and I'm thrilled by the chance to do that. But you keep me company as well as we gaze into the abyss of life and the tiny little life raft that literature gives us out there on the abyss. Not even a raft, just a, a tattered little rope left behind by some geniuses in which we can clutch at from time to time. Oh, man. Aren't you glad we're not alone? (laughs) A week is too long to wait for the next episode, but somehow we must. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.